Wrestling fans, welcome to a holiday edition of Charting the Territories. Last month, our podcast came out on Thanksgiving, and this month, due to the uh, randomness of the calendar, it comes out the fourth Thursday of every month, and that means this month it is on Christmas Eve. So happy Christmas Eve, Merry Christmas, happy holidays to all of our listeners. And John, as you know, Christmas is a very special time because uh, we honor the visiting um, by three wise men. And uh, John, of course, as you know, the three wise men are Albano, Blassie, and the Grand Wizard. Those are the only three wise men I know of. Same here. My name is Al Getz, and with me, as always, is John Boucher, who is digging himself out of the snow. Uh, Is the snow (laughs) still going to be there on Christmas? Do we know? Uh, There'll probably be some remnants. I don't know if we'll have another dusting, but I don't think it's supposed to get that warm yet, but it'll still be slushy and, and, and gross snow, you know, that gross New York snow. Have a slushy, gross Christmas, everybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this month on the podcast, we're going to look at the fourth quarter of 1972, which featured uh, one of the more surprising babyface turns as Dr. X, masked wrestler extraordinaire, turns babyface and feuds with his former friend and ally, Bob Sweetan. And I guess for every action, there is an equal reaction with Dr. X turning babyface. I guess they felt they needed to even up the sides. And so Jim Valiant turned heel. We also had a couple of debuts in the territory from some youngsters. We have Mike George making his first appearance in the territory, plus America's youngest professional wrestler makes his pro debut. We'll talk about who that is. We'll also look at a week in the territory where we have lineups for 21 different house shows, which is as complete a booking sheet as we may ever see for this territory. So we'll take a close look at how the wrestlers were booked out to the various towns and try and identify patterns. We'll also see if we can figure out how many shows we might be missing and if we can guess the lineup for them. So it's a little bit of detective work. Um, Now, John, when I got into wrestling, when I first started reading the magazines and getting really obsessed with it, Pro Wrestling Illustrated had their arena report section. Oh, yeah. And when it first started, it was only uh, WWF shows. Hmm. But after, I think, several months, it expanded to involve shows from all the territories. But me being the nerd that I was, I had all these little charts. And this was, I was young enough, I didn't know what a spreadsheet was, but I was basically making spreadsheets on paper. Um, to sort of chart the dates and what wrestlers were booked on which nights and which towns. And in the 80s, one of the things, uh, particularly with the WWF, as they expanded nationally, the lineups for the various shows were were very similar. Uh, if you think about how, you know, how big an area they promoted towns in, they might have a group of wrestlers working on the West Coast, a group of wrestlers in the Midwest, and a group of wrestlers in, in the Northeast. And it doesn't make sense for individual wrestlers to zigzag all across the country they have three separate crews um but night after night you're you're working with the same group of wrestlers and that's what i thought wrestling was for the longest time we also you know looking at memphis uh the house show that happens in memphis the following week it happens almost identically in louisville evansville uh tupelo etc etc but as I've been researching this and we go into the 60s and 70s, that's not always how it was. So, so John, what was your perception of, of how house shows worked? It was it was uh, when I was a kid when I first started watching the WWF on uh, Channel 9 WOR TV. 
for the first year or so, like this was like 81, 82, I really had no idea where this wrestling was coming from. Uh, uh, this was the first wrestling I had ever seen. And there was no sort of indication as to the geography of this program. It was just all-star wrestling on Saturday morning and championship wrestling on Saturday night. Um, and they had the World Wrestling Federation Championship and the Intercontinental Championship. Um, you know, their titles with names like that are like the antithesis of a regional title. So there are no real clues as to where this is coming from to me. Uh, a nondescript building with neither named by nor alluded to by the announcers. The only clues are really when during the matches they would have Howard Finkel reading off wrestlers who will be appearing at, you know, different venues during upcoming weeks, like, uh, you know, Ice World in Totowo, New Jersey, or Bishop Ford High School in Brooklyn, the Jaffa Mosque in Alabama, Pennsylvania. Yes. You know, uh, you know, then they had the interviews and the promos, which were promoting the next Madison Square Garden card, which seemed to happen on the, the third Monday of the month most of the time. And I just imagine like all these guys driving around in a bus, you know, like bad guys in the back, good guys in the front, or maybe with bad guys on one aisle, side of the aisle, good guys on the other, and the bad guys be throwing garbage, you know, I don't know. So if the um, good guys are in the front, does that mean they're driving? <laughs> I don't have a good question. I'd imagine the, you know, Joe McHugh or Gary Michael Capetto would be driving usually. They're ring announcers. Now, um, I also watch, uh, you know, on Channel 9 in New York. And what was interesting about the New York market that's probably different from any others is that we oftentimes in the same episode of a show got – um, local promos for different house shows. We would get Madison Square Garden, and sometimes, based on the schedule, they would also be promoting a show at the Coliseum or in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Yep. So it, it's one of the things I would love to do is go back and look at the lineups and see if they made a point of having different lineups, you know, because if you're promoting Hogan against, you know, Morocco in the garden at the same time, you shouldn't be promoting Hogan versus Bundy in the Coliseum. You you want the fans to think that Hogan has one current threat. So perhaps at the Coliseum, when it overlapped, they're promoting, you know, a tag bout or a six man is the main. So I'd love to go back and look at that. Um, and of course, nowadays we have, you know, Raw and SmackDown crews. And for the last, most of the last 20 years, you know, you're part of the same troop of, of wrestlers that are working house shows together. But one of the great things about charting the territories and other historical uh, books and websites and projects is we've learned that that's not always the case. And as I've said, a lot of the territories, you think about them as a wheel and spoke pattern where the geographic center of a territory, if we best example would be Florida, where Tampa is sort of in the middle of the territory. That's where the TV is filmed. And that's where most of the wrestlers would live. So even if the two shows on a, on a given night of the week are six, seven hours apart. Each of them are probably only, no more than a few hours from Tampa. So you get in your car loads and some, some guys drive north and some guys drive south. Uh, after the show, everyone gets drunk and pillages, what have you, gets back in their cars, drives home. And then the next morning, they all wake up in their own bed, and now they get into different car loads. It might be a slightly different mix of guys in your car, and this time maybe some of you are heading southeast and the others are heading northwest. And as a young up-and-coming wrestler getting to ride on a daily basis with a different 
you know, group of wrestlers is a great learning experience, let alone working against different wrestlers or teaming with different wrestlers night in, night out. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting, too, especially when you're talk, talking about the, the WWF in that era um, and talking to people now who were around watching the TV. And it's interesting because you're not, you're not even aware as a kid that they're whatever what's happening in New York you know, they may have a totally different program happening in, in, in the Boston shows or in Baltimore. Uh, it's very interesting to go back and like one of the we're sort of losing that that those localized TV, you know, the, the promos that's sort of like lost to time. Just what, whatever's left on VHS, you know, cause you don't really get those when you watch that stuff on the on the network. Even, you know, the stuff from the 70s you don't have those local promos for all. Or, the, or if they do, it's all from one you know, area. They got all the tapes from one. And one of the things I'm surprised, although at this point, since nobody's going to be running house shows anytime soon, but I think the technology is there. If you put your show, let's say it's AEW Dark on YouTube, um, a lot of YouTube videos I see have ad ad breaks inserted where it's not just part of the whole, you know, it's not part of the show. It's literally a a freshly served ad that seems to be demographically, you know, so I think that technology is there. If you're running multiple house shows on and, and you have AEW Dark on YouTube, if the person watching on YouTube lives in Atlanta, you can feed them a certain ad. If they live in San Francisco, you can feed them something different. I, you know, I know when I watch, for example, on Hulu, when I watch, you know, uh, shows on demand with commercial breaks in. It knows I live in Atlanta because I'm bombarded with these uh, political ads for the Senate runoff coming in early oh, yeah. January. So, like I said, the technology is there. Uh, I just don't know what it would take for a wrestling company at this point to use it, and if it's even worth it, since everything seems to be uh, promoting the national, you know, the cable TV yeah. or the pay-per-views. It, it's sort of a lost art but it's not lost because we have found it and we are going to talk about 21 different house shows in one week and keep in mind that's just one territory there were what about two dozen territories between the u.s and canada in the early yeah. 70s somewhere around that most of them weren't running three shows a night but um mid-atlantic was wwf was most of the others are running two a night and some of the smaller ones are running one or two a night but when you think about how many shows that means in a given night you know you're talking upwards of 50 house shows yeah six nights a week uh in in the u.s and canada which is pretty amazing yeah. and, and we're going to yeah. go back even further we're going to talk about 1962 and the fourth quarter of 1962 in the McGurk territory, which featured um, a legit Mount Rushmore of the, you know, McGurk Watts territory. And I, I guess I just gave away who it is because it's Bill Watts. Uh, <laughs> he makes his debut for Leroy McGurk, but it's not his pro debut. He had a handful of matches before that. And John, you're going to talk a little bit about the early days of Bill Watts's career oh, yeah. and why his debut in this territory consisted of three matches over the span of one week and then he's on the shelf for two months it's a 
typical Bill Watts slash pro wrestler story. Uh, from there, we're going to go to our regular Stats 101 feature. We're going to talk about year-end rankings, um, which is cool because as much as I make these fancy charts that show all the spot ratings and feud scores for every single week, I understand it can be a bit overwhelming. And so coming up with a way to put these into a, you know, top 12 or, you know, top 10, whatever year end rankings, the top wrestlers in the territory for a calendar year might be an easier uh, beginning point for people discovering our podcast and our blog. So we're going to look at for 1962, 1972, 1976, and 1980, the top 12 wrestlers each year, I call them the Dirty Dozen, and the top five feuds, which I call the Feud in Five. And in the process of going over the top feuds, we will come up with, we will discuss a asterisk of sorts uh, in how we calculate the feud scores. And it's not quite the elephant in the room, but we're going to have to talk about the dog in the room when we look at the top feuds of 1980. So that's what we have in store this month on the podcast. And of course, for more details on the statistics that we're going to refer to, you can check out our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. And for our new listeners, Charting the Territories is a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk, Bill Watts territory from the late 50s to the mid-80s, in addition to attempting to get records of every house show promoted in the territory during that time, we use the data that we have to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture, and that take into account the unique nature of professional wrestling. We have two main statistics that we will refer to. The first is a SPOT rating, and SPOT stands for Statistical Position Over Time, and it measures a wrestler's average position, or SPOT, on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher SPOT rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or the opening matches. SPOT is a number between 0 and 1, expresses a two-digit decimal, and a spot rating of 1.00 means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. The other statistic is a feud score, with feud standing for frequent encounters using data, and it's used to measure what I call the intensity of a feud, and it's based on how many times a match happens and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. If it's just once a week for a few weeks, it'll have a low feud score. If it's happening in multiple towns with rematches over multiple weeks, it's going to have a higher feud score. It's expressed as a whole integer, and as a broad rule of thumb, a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud. 40 or higher means it's a major feud. And we're going to see a major feud when we talk about the fourth quarter of 1972, because the big news was the babyface turn of Dr. X. And this Dr. X, John, was Jim Osborne. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have heard from a lot of people who were fans of the McGurk territory in the early 70s that Dr. X was over huge as a heel. And he didn't have that long a run. He came in in early 1971 um, and ends up winning the World Junior Heavyweight title uh, towards the end of the year, gets into a big feud with Danny Hodge in early 1972, which leads to him uh, dropping the 
world junior title to back to Hodge and getting unmasked in most of the cities around the loop and unmasking and, and as Jim Osborne, he had been here previously as Jim Osborne as an unmasked wrestler. So there was some degree of familiarity. Uh, he took a couple of months off and then came back and continued as a heel. Uh, he is uh, aligned with bruiser Bob Sweetan, uh, but they don't last long. And and let's talk a little bit about Jim Osborne because he's someone a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with because aside from his big run here and another big run under a mask in another territory, he was uh, just one of those uh, guys who worked the territories, who traveled around uh, from town to town and from place to place, although he almost was an interesting footnote to history. Uh, but John, let's tell us a little bit more about uh, Jim slash Rowdy Red Osborne. Yeah, he's Dr. X uh, Rowdy Red uh, slash Jim Osborne. He's one of these guys that since I've been looking at results, your results, I'm looking at these results with you, I've become sort of fixated on, mostly because there's so much more I still want to know about this guy. and I want to learn more about him. Uh, not just his wrestling career, because there are some some curious gaps in the results that are widely available for him. But I also like, you know, like we, I, I really enjoy learning about these guys and their lives before and after wrestling, which is really what I'm after with Osborne, which I have come up empty thus far. But we do know about him as he started uh, started in the early 60s working for Goulas Welch under the name Patty Osborne. Uh, starts working under his real name, Jim Osborne, around 63 uh, works in Arizona, Rod Fenton, uh, Texas. He was here from McGurk in 65, like you said, in the mid-card sort of role. And uh, the footnote in history that you were mentioning, you're most likely referring to uh, December 1965. Uh, we see a, uh, a rowdy red Osborne advertise in an opening match against Terrible Terry. Who? In Brownfield. Terrible Terry in Brownfield, Texas. Uh, Terrible Terry... Is Terry Funk. Uh, and this match uh, on December 6th, 1965, is one of several matches that have been purported, recognized as Terry Funk's first match. Uh, in his book, Terry uh, talks about working his first matches against his uncle, uh, Jack Kane. Uh, Jack Kane being a guy, I think this is a guy who's allegedly married to Billy Bob Thornton's future mother. At one point, I think this is where the Terry Funk, Billy Bob story. Wait, wait about is the someone's dog. future mother different from someone's mother? Future mother. So the woman that would give birth to Billy Bob Thornton—that's uh, what we're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. I just so the way you said the way you said future mother. I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> is that like a mother and like a mother-in-law? I don't know. He wasn't his mother. She wasn't his mother yet. This was, because she hadn't been born. Yes, oh. yes, yes. It makes much more sense when you put it that way. Uh, but yeah, I think that's where the story with Terry Funk and the Billy Bob and the dog story comes from. Yeah, Jack, um, Kane, Jack Kane was used uh, for a while as sort of a heel ref slash wrestler slash kind of sort of heel manager. Uh, but we, you, what's interesting was that for many years, the company line was that Terry Funk's first match was against Sputnik Monroe December 9th yep. in Amarillo. But 
as researchers have have found more things, a we found this one from uh, Brownfield, Texas, which was three days before Amarillo. Uh, but then when I posted this on Twitter, I got a response from the official Twitter account of Terry Funk, who uh, pointed me to a YouTube video, which was a uh, 40-minute interview that Funk had done, where he said his first match was in Littlefield, Texas, which was a mixed tag uh, against Jack Kane. And I tried to find the ad for that. I did find the newspaper covering Littlefield, Texas. They had some ads, but it looks like they didn't run ads for every show, but they typically ran on Saturdays. And Hmm. remember that Terry Funk was still a senior in college in December of 1965 and a football star. So if we make the assumption that he would not have had a professional wrestling match until after football season of his senior year was over, because remember, they took that sort of thing seriously as far as eligibility goes. And even though it's pro wrestling, still, it would not have been worth the risk. So if we take that into account, uh, West Texas State's last game of that season was November 27th. Therefore, if this was his first match in Littlefield, Texas, it had to have been December 4th, 1965. Yeah, there's still, even with that clarification from Funk, there's still a few question marks. Uh, and it's interesting, too, because like with the, with, the, with the towns, like Brownfield is in the town they normally ran. So it, does, it, does, it would theoretically make sense to have Terry on like a smaller spot show uh, before the Amarillo debut or whatever. So it's, it's uh, and it's interesting. You you made some great points when we were talking about this the other day. You know, we don't know if you know w- which of these matches actually happened. Somebody don't have the results. We know it was we know what was scheduled. Uh, we know what was advertised. But we don't know what happened. Um, and like you said, it's also probably hi- highly probable that Rowdy Red Osborne is Jim Osborne, but he was also wrestling as Jim Osborne in Arizona around this time. But there's also a Red Osborne on an Amarillo TV taping in October. Uh, and then we don't really see any results for him until the middle of next year in Gulf Coast. Um, like the point you always make, 95% sure does not mean uh, 100% sure. Yeah, it, it almost certainly is Jim Osborne, but I'm you know not swearing on a Bible or you know on my kid's life. I have no kids, so maybe I can get away with that. But if I had <laughs> kids, I wouldn't. It is almost certainly Jim Osborne. Yeah, like Wikipedia also has him has Red Osborne as an alias of his, but Wikipedia is not to be trusted. I mean, even uh, like it's interesting. Speaking of Wikipedia, they Jim being in Arizona, Red being in Texas. Uh, you know, J- Jim is is working for Elite Fields and Gulf Coast, uh, Florida, Georgia, Portland, Crockett, Mid Atlantic, the LaBelle's in Los Angeles, and Wikipedia actually cites. Uh, August 12th, 1967 match at the Cow Palace in San Francisco between Pat Patterson and Jim Osborne as Pat Patterson's first match for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation and Osborne's lone match for the WWF, which is obviously incorrect because this is a show promoted by Roy Shire and Pat Patterson did not appear into the, in the WWF until 1977. Uh, and I think this, uh, the confusion comes here because the main event on that card was Ray Stevens wrestling Bruno San Martino. So I think uh, Bruno is on the card 
this entire card shows up in WWWF results. Yeah, that that happens a lot. I know a, a lot of the AWA results books list shows from Hawaii as being AWA shows because Bachwinkle and a couple of others were on them. It's you know, and it it's interesting to see how how many times Bruno's name shows up outside of the WWWF when he is the king of the WWWF. Um, yeah. He ended up not making the show, but uh, Gunkel booked him. Uh, during the Georgia Wrestling Wars of 1973. Now, of course, I would love to know if Bruno not appearing was, you know, perhaps a, a I guess we call it a double cross or what have you, but this was planned, you know, by, uh, you know, the, the powers that be to, you know, to whom Gunkel was the outsider. Uh, I would love to know details of that. And Bruno would occasionally uh, take some uh, siestas down to Florida, uh, and who can blame him? You know, uh, take yeah. a paid, va- you know, take a a paid vacation uh, to you yeah. know stay stay on the beach in the day, and then uh, wrestle uh, and get paid for it a couple of times. That's a, that's a sweet gig. So okay, so Bruno, wow, Bruno versus Ray Stevens. Who won that match? Yeah. Do you know? Oh, I don't know. Don't have it. I would, you know, I would assume uh, they had to protect Stevens. Yeah. Um, and, but man, Bruno didn't. What's one of the interesting things when I was looking at results, uh, as I often say, you know, when they are built into a rematch in, in the main event, they they do some form of a non-clean finish, which could be the babyface winning by DQ, the heel winning by DQ, the heel winning by count-out. There's There's all sorts of ways to do it, and they usually mix it up, but Bruno seems to be the exception to that even when they had a non-clean finish it was bruno winning by dq or count out or what have you or going to a double or a curfew or whatever there wasn't often the bruno you know losing his temper and getting disqualified or being counted out uh they not only protected him by not having him get pinned but not even having him on the losing end of a match. They seem to do that a lot more often for him than for most of your other typical babyface champs. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting. I with this being on Wikipedia, like I don't I don't want to say it's a good example, but it's an example of how these types of little inaccuracies, not saying they're intentional or malicious, but these little errors can sort of cloud the, the the accurate picture of wrestling history that yeah. we are trying to paint here. As long as there's no official record, which there isn't, yeah. uh, it's I, you know I can't tell you how many times I've seen incorrect dates for title changes or what have you. And and it could be as simple as someone transcribed a six and a two instead of, you know, or yeah. six, maybe a six and a seven instead of 1976, they put 1967 and yeah. it gets copied and pasted to all the other sites. And I see it time and time again. And it's, it's maddening. But even at this point, even if we were able to clean things up because it's still incomplete, it's not worth as much as if it happened think. to a lot with the, the cage match website, because they'll have the, the European date style. Well, they'll have right. year, uh, month or, you know, so it's in, inverted from the U.S. style. So you see so many dates getting messed up, <laughs> people copying and pasting. And in my case, when I put, uh, you know, all the card listings on on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com, 
I vet them. I, you know, I eyeball them and make sure that the data is right and that the crew working on listed on that show was the crew working at that time. Uh, if especially if I'm taking things from another source, I, I, you know, I give it the sniff test and make sure it passes. Um, so Jim Osborne, Red Osborne, Patty right. Osborne. That sounds like a that sounds like a Vince McMahon uh, naming convention. <laughs> yeah, you got the double Irish uh, yeah. of of Patty and Osborne. Up to this point, he's been booked you know, mostly as like a, a, a like a mid Carter. Uh, the biggest push he's had would probably be running Portland in the summer of '67, the summer of love. Uh, worked a bunch of main event main events against Lonnie Maine and Stan Stasiak. I think he had a quick run as half of the tag champs there. Um, but for the most part, like you said, in a mid-card journeyman type role. Uh, did have a nice run tagging with Jerry Miller with McGurk in 69. But he would go under a transformation in the spring of 1970 that would really take his career to that next level. Um, when he first shows up on AWA in March of 1970, he starts off in that same sort of mid-card role. Uh, but in, in May, May 2nd, I believe, Minneapolis, the, the crusher is wrestling uh, Dr. X. And, uh, and the crusher is attempting to not only beat Dr. X, this is the dick buyer Dr. X, but also unmask Dr. X. <gasps> Dr. X manages to save his mask because of the interference of a masked accomplice who is also wearing a Dr. X mask. And on the next set of TV tapings, uh, AWA announcer Marty O'Neill is interviewing Dr. X and trying to find out who this new masked man is. And Dr. X tells Marty O'Neill simply, you can call him Double X. And according to Dick Byer, the destroyer, Dr. X, this whole idea of giving Osborne the Double X identity was, was, was his idea. He said that they, you know, they didn't know what to do with Jim Osborne. He was sort of stalling here. So I said, give him to me as a partner. Uh, they had a, the two guys had a similar build. Uh, so he gave him the mask and same gear and decided to call him double X. Uh, that's, that's according to Dick Byer. But he, but he uh, only had one X on his mask. He didn't have two. Nope. They both had the one X. Okay. And they were, they were red hot together that summer. Two mask guys, uh, a heel team, similar build. They could do the, you know, the switcheroo thing. Got great heat. They got over great. Uh, and of course with, with, uh, Dr. X, uh, already being an established single star, they were all able to engage in all sorts of trickery in some of his singles matches as well. Like at one point, the former AWA champion, Mr. M, who was a big Bill Miller, Dr. Dr. Bill Miller, the wrestling veterinarian, uh, comes in under the mask for the first time since the early 60s when he had the, the AWA title, challenges Dr. X. And they do, they do this finish where there's a, like a ref bump and Dr. X rolls out under the ring. Double X comes out and he gets unmasked and is revealed to be Jim Osborne. Uh, and Osborne continued to work in the AWA for a few months, still being billed as Double X, even though he was no longer wearing, wearing the mask. Uh, and later in the summer, there's an angle on TV where Blackjack, Lanza, and Bobby Heenan turn on Dr. X during a match and leave him in an unmasked, bloody heap uh, but Dr. X managed to get a towel over his head, uh, and this angle also turned Dr. X babyface. Uh, and Dr. X then agrees to unmask, unmask himself if, he, if he's granted a rematch with Lanza, which he does. And he's revealed to just be Dick Byer from Syracuse, New York. 
Uh, you know, the real story here is Bayer was leaving the, the territory, the AWA, and filling his duties, putting over Lanza as the new top heel in the territory. Uh, Bayer slipped off the old Dr. X mask, slipped on the Destroyer mask, and was off to Hawaii. Uh, and this would also mean that Double X, Jim Osborne, would also be leaving. Uh, but when he did finally leave the AWA and headed back to the McGurk territory, he takes the Dr. X gimmick with him. Uh, and from what I've read in George Shire's fantastic book, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, highly recommended. McGurk introduced Dr. X the same way that Vern introduced Dick Byer as Dr. X, uh, a mysterious masked man sitting at ringside during TV tapings who would eventually start to interfere on behalf of the heels. And he had, had great, great success with this new persona. He always, you know, he'd always found himself positioned well with this with this new gimmick yeah he would use it for years with several different runs in the mcgurk territory and then later working for george and gil culkin in mississippi when they split from leroy after he was initially unmasked in the mcgurk territory by danny hodge in early 72 he takes six weeks or so off comes back with the mask back on and forms a team with bob sweetan the team breaks up around october i believe there's a tv angle probably as simple as a miscommunication during a tag bout uh, and they begin a feud throughout the territory in Shreveport, Baton Rouge, and Chalmette, they have a four-match series in November and December. The first match in each of those towns went to a double DQ or a no contest when both men attacked the referee. Depending on the town, the feud then progressed to no disqualification matches, lumberjack matches, Texas death matches, and or matches for Sweetan's Brass Nux Trophy. Mm -hmm. um, and in all three of those towns, Sweetan won the fourth bout. So uh, he won the feud. In Little Rock, they only had one match against one another, but the article in the newspaper says that matchmaker Leroy McGurk would instruct his referee to allow more than a little freedom to perform mm. their own brand of mayhem. <laughs> so it's not explicitly a no disqualification match, but but they're sort of saying these guys are going to fight and break every rule in the book and we're just going to let it slide. And, and this is something... I've seen occasionally uh, we we understand what the term no disqualification means, but a lot of times the there are slight variations on these rules. So I wanted to talk about some of those. So, of course, what we just said, uh, there's a laxed rules where there's sort of an agreement uh, by the referee to only insert himself when necessary. Um, sometimes they're billed as having no referee, although when that happens, the referee is actually stationed outside the ring and will only come in to count a fall. Uh -huh. So he cannot call for rope breaks or, you know, unclose the fist or whatever. Well, what's interesting is I wonder how long it takes the ref to get in the ring when a pin yeah. fall occurs. And what if he's on the wrong side of the ring? Are we wasting a valuable two seconds with yeah, you know, the referee? And, and heaven forbid it was Bronco Lubitsch. I was going to say Bronco <laughs> Lubitsch. Like, you know. Would it take him 17 seconds to get in the ring? <laughs> you go to a TV break and come back and he's barely in the ring. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hear a brief word from our sponsor. What was that? What was Portland, <laughs> Oregon sponsor, the, the furniture store guy? 
Oh, God, I can't remember the guy. Whatever it was. We're going to hear from so-and-so while Bronco Lubitsch tries to get in the ring. Um, Of course, there are... Uh, there's a stipulation for title matches where they say the disqualification rule is waived. And what that refers to is the idea of titles not being able to change hands on a DQ. In in this case, with the DQ rule waived, in theory, if the heel champion intentionally disqualifies himself, he cannot save the title because that would count the same as a pinfaller's mission. X and Sweet Tan was a big feud, with X is uh, now a babyface for the first on this territory, but they're not the only main eventers in the territory, so we're going to look at the roster for the fourth quarter of 1972, and you can see this uh, in full full color uh, Excel spreadsheet form on the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com, but the main eventers in the territory, who all have an average spot rating of 0.80 or above during the quarter, on the babyface side, we have Bill Watts, Grizzly Smith, Danny Hodge, Dr. X, and Ivan Putsky. And on the heel side, Bob Sweetan, Tarzan Tyler, Terry Garvin, and Duke Myers. And Garvin and Duke Myers are a tag team. Um... In addition to X going from heel to babyface in October, right around the same time, Jim Valiant turns heel, uh, uh, and then he's only here about four more weeks, and then he leaves. So they, uh, I guess, just to sort of even the sides, uh, they had Valiant turn heel. The other upper mid-carders are babyfaces Tom Jones, Igor Putsky, Dennis Stamp, Ken Mantell, Vic Mueller and Ramon Torres. And on the heel side, you have Dale Lewis, Jerry Miller, and Chatty Yakuchi. And what's really interesting is Yakuchi is here as half of a tag team. His partner is Yasu Fuji. But their spot ratings are slightly different. And Yakuchi's is just barely above a 0. .60, which places him in the upper mid Carter category. And Fuji's is just under the .60, which makes him a mid-carder. A little further down the cards, as we mentioned earlier, we see a couple of newcomers. Mike George debuted in mid-October. He had, uh, I think he was just, he was still in his rookie year. He had turned pro earlier in 1972, wrestling in Georgia and then Florida. Uh, In the very early days of Mid-South, Mike George was not just a champ, not just a double champ, but a triple champion. He was the North American champion, the Mississippi heavyweight champion, and one half of the Mid-South tag team champs, interestingly enough, with Bob Sweetan, who's here in, in also in 1972. Uh, another rookie made his pro debut uh, in this territory at the tender young age of 18, just having graduated high school in June of 1972, and he was billed locally as America's youngest pro wrestler, Don Waite. And that last name is spelled W-A-Y-T. Graduated high school in June 1972 in White Oak, Texas. Had his first match in Wichita Falls on November 9th. And uh, Wichita Falls and White Oak are not too far apart. Uh, So he used his real name of Don Waite. 
Uh, although after his first couple of appearances, he changes it to Don Allen, and he's known as Bulldog Don Allen in this territory. Uh, after he leaves McGurk, he goes back to using his real name of Don Waite um, in a journeyman career that sees him in the mid-cards and uh, uh, here, central states and various other uh, territories, mostly in the central and southern part of the U.S. That's the the main guys on the roster. And of course, there's uh, some mid-carders and some preliminary wrestlers. They've got a pretty big crew. As we mentioned, they're running, you know, three shows a night, most nights. So they've got a real really big crew and the feuds that are going on at the time, the biggest feud was Bob Sweetan versus Dr. X. And using our feud score metric, it hit major feud status in December with a feud score of 43. Remember, I think 40 and above is a major feud. This hits that level. Other notable feuds include Dr. X while he was still a heel against Jim Valiant while Valiant was still a face. And then Jim Valiant, after he turned heel, has a feud with Danny Hodge. Uh, Hodge also feuds with Jerry Miller. Ivan Putski is feuding with Tarzan Tyler. Tarzan Tyler is also feuding with Grizzly Smith and Bill Watts. And Grizzly Smith is also feuding with Sweet Tan. And Watts is feuding with Sweet Tan as well. And this is actually fairly common. We often see the various main event baby faces all having several matches with the various main event heels as opposed to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast where it's Lawler Dundee every night of the week for 17 weeks straight um, also as we talked about last month Watts and Grizzly aren't wrestling six seven nights a week they're more like three or four so if you know Grizzly is wrestling Tarzan some nights maybe Watts is wrestling Tarzan the other nights same thing goes for Sweet Tan so so that's how they sort of mix things up at this point in time Grizzly is basically booking the lower portion of the territory which is Louisiana and parts of Mississippi um although I don't think he's actually booking in Mississippi uh and Watts has uh, a lot more control over what's going on in the northern part of the territory which is Tulsa, o- Oklahoma City, Little Rock, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. With that in mind, we're going to take a look at the week of Monday, November 27th through Sunday, December 3rd where we have 21 house shows, 21 known house shows in the territory. So Monday night They ran Tulsa, Shreveport, and Morgan City. And Tulsa and Shreveport had been regular Monday night towns going back years. Morgan City was not regularly run, but around this time they ran it four straight Monday nights. So that was a third show on Mondays. Tuesdays was typically three shows there. Little Rock, Monroe, and Alexandria. Monroe and Alexandria are both in Louisiana. Wednesday, they have three shows in Fort Smith, Arkansas, Jackson, Mississippi, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And occasionally, if they didn't run Jackson, they would run nearby Vicksburg, Mississippi in its place. Thursdays was Wichita Falls, Texas, Greenville, Mississippi, uh, Chalmette, Louisiana, and uh, this particular week, a fourth show, a spot show in a town called Faraday, Louisiana. So four sh- four shows in one night, John. It's wild. Friday night, we have three shows, one in Oklahoma City, one in Longview, Texas, and one in Lafayette, Louisiana. So Friday is Oklahoma City, Longview, and Lafayette. 
Saturday is LaRanger, Louisiana, Greenwood, Mississippi, and Joplin, Missouri. And Sunday, they ran their regular Sunday town of Homa, but they also had a special uh, house show in Shreveport. Now, Shreveport was run earlier in the week on Mondays. Remember, they run it they run it weekly based on when the TV airs. So in Shreveport, the TV um, probably aired Saturday or maybe early Sunday morning. So if they ran it Monday by the weekend, a new episode of TV aired and then they run the house show later on Sunday. So it's still one episode and they didn't run Shreveport the next day. They didn't run it Monday. This was instead of the regularly scheduled Monday. So with that being said, I actually prepared a little chart. I'll put it out on Twitter. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's L-G-E-T-Z Wrestling. But what I did was I listed all the, the entire talent roster and their quote-unquote booking sheet for the week. And I color-coded it so that you can see that it's not the same eight wrestlers working the same towns with the same crew every night. Um, one of the one of the things we'll see. So I'm looking at the roster now, and there are more baby faces than heels. I believe there are 15 baby faces and 12 heels, and this honestly happens a lot of the time. If you think about it, a lot of the times the preliminary matches on cards are scientific bouts between two baby faces mm. or a baby face and a heel. Um, also, as we mentioned, Watts and Grizzly are not quite full time. So maybe you know, uh, the two of them are, ha- you know, work half the time and together. That's one. There are also four women wrestlers in the territory for the week. And that's Donna Christianello, Joyce Grable, Tony Rose and Vicki Williams. And the first three nights, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, they work tag team matches, all four women in a tag match. Uh, but then they're split up the rest of the week. So if we look at the booking sheet, one of the things we see is while it's not the same crew every single night of the week, there are some uh, cases where the crew is similar. And in particular, the crew working Tulsa on Monday, most, but not all of them, work Little Rock the next day. And most, but not all the crew working Little Rock works Fort Smith on Wednesday. Now, the crew that works Fort Smith on Wednesday pretty much is the same crew that works Wichita Falls on Thursday, and most of that same crew works Joplin, Missouri on Saturday. So Wednesday in Fort Smith, Thursday in Wichita Falls, and Saturday in Joplin. What's really interesting is the one thing that those three towns have in common, and that is they all have the same local promoter at this time. Uh, Uh Leonard Clay promotes all three towns. The Fort Smith and Wichita Falls cards are almost always identical. It's not just the same crew. It's the same exact matches. And often, if there's a stipulation match in the main event, it's the same in both towns. So it, it, perhaps it's just an example of, of, you know, Leonard Clay just wanted to keep things really simple for him, uh, make it real easy to prepare his advertising materials when the card is the same every single week. So if we look at what I call utilization, and that is looking at who's booked on all the shows on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and trying to figure out if there are enough wrestlers not booked 
to add and to have a show that we don't know about. So remember, Monday there ran three shows, Shreveport, Tulsa, and Morgan City, and every wrestler on the crew is booked for a match except Grizzly Smith. And he's probably running uh, Morgan City or Shreveport. My guess would be Morgan City. So he's probably at the show sort of overseeing things and uh, counting the money and uh, just being, you know, in general, very tall. (laughs) Tuesdays, everyone on the crew is booked except for three wrestlers. And that's Bill Watts, Vic Mueller, and Tretch Phillips. That's not enough you know, to have another show. Uh, and as best I can tell, they're not running spot shows in the middle of nowhere where they take two of their guys and then just grab two locals and call them, you know, the masked marauders. It's always possible that happens, but I think I'd have seen evidence of it by now. They really don't tend to just use random locals who would just work spot shows and, and nothing else. So, and my guess is Watts is probably at the Little Rock show, sort of overseeing things. And for whatever reason, they just left Mueller and Tretch off the cars and gave them a day off. Wednesday, November 29th, we have three shows and everyone is booked except for Grizzly Smith, uh, who is probably uh, running Baton Rouge. Thursdays, we have four shows. We have Wichita Falls, Greenville, Chalmette, and Faraday. And everyone is booked except for Salento Rodriguez. It's also possible they booked him somewhere, but he didn't hear them. Oh, oh that's horrible. Oh. I know. How dare I? Oh. Oh. oh, Friday. Again, three shows and everyone is booked except Bill Watts, Grizzly Smith, and Gene Lewis. And mm. technically, one of the women is not booked. But what happens is Vicki Williams is advertised in both Lafayette and Longview. Um, she's not double shotting. They probably just made a mistake and, uh, she's only working one town and Joyce Grable is working the other. So all the women are booked. Uh, they're just in separate towns working singles matches and then Watts and Grizz, uh, get a day off. Although Grizzly is probably in Lafayette and Watts is probably in Oklahoma city. And Gene Lewis is probably driving Dale Lewis. So he's probably there too, but he's not working. Saturday is the first night where we seem to have enough wrestlers unbooked that there could be an additional fourth show. Remember, they're running LaRanger, Louisiana, Greenwood, Mississippi, and Joplin, Missouri. And all of those are basically what we would call today B-towns. They're usually smaller towns, smaller crews. So if we look at the wrestlers that are not booked in either of those three towns, on the babyface side, we have Danny Hodge. Igor Putsky, Ivan Putsky, and Salento Rodriguez. And on the heel side, we have Chatty Yakuchi, Gene Lewis, Jim Valiant, and Yasu Fuji. So, knowing those are the wrestlers that are available, can we try and guess what the card would be? So, on the babyface side, we have Hodge, both Putsky cousins, and Salento Rodriguez. On the heel side, we have Yakuchi and Fuji, Gene Lewis, and Jim Valiant. If we remember that Valiant was feuding with Danny Hodge a little bit, it's very possible they were wrestling one another. Um, Yakuchi and Fuji are a regular tag team. The Putskis as cousins were a frequent tag team. So again, it's possible it was the Putskis 
versus the two Japanese wrestlers, which leaves a preliminary bout between Gene Lewis and Salento Rodriguez, yep. both of whom were preliminary wrestlers. So yep. that is very likely the card. But again, 95% sure is not 100% sure. Exactly. It's also possible those guys got a day off. It's also possible... Those guys worked a TV taping earlier in the day and then just didn't work a house show that night. Unfortunately, again, since we're dealing with incomplete information, we don't know what we don't know. As far as Sundays go, Homa was a regular show and it usually has a small crew. And back to our um, our geographical considerations, the crew that works Loranger on Saturdays is almost always the same crew that works Homa on Sundays. Um, both of those towns are pretty far down in Louisiana, so it makes sense for uh, the same crew to work both. It's also possible um, these guys are working more of the Louisiana towns than the others. They might live closer to those towns. I've been. I just started reading Ron Starr's um, biography that he uh, uh, that Rock Rims wrote with him. And Starr mentions when he came to the McGurk territory, he actually stayed in Baton Rouge. And if you look at the map of the territory, Baton Rouge is pretty far away from the northern towns of Oklahoma City and Little Rock and Tulsa and all that. Um, so, but he ends up working most of the time uh, on Grizzlies shows in Louisiana and less often in the upper part of the territory. Mm. So it's possible the wrestlers working LaRanger and Homa are living in Baton Rouge instead of, you know, a place like Tulsa or Shreveport, which is Shreveport is probably as close as you can get to being in the center of the territory at this point in time, as spread out as it is. Um, it's in the northern part of Louisiana, so it's not too far a drive to the towns uh, in Oklahoma and not too far a drive to the towns in southeastern Louisiana. Um, but Sundays, they don't normally run a full schedule of house shows. They typically run Homa and the occasional other show. And in this case, since Shreveport was sort of, they say they moved it from their regular night. Um, they have a pretty loaded show, but the wrestlers that aren't booked in either of those towns might have the day off. So I can't prove the existence of another house show on Sunday, but they're almost certainly was a fourth house show on Saturday with Hodge, Valiant, the Putskis, Yakuchi, Fuji, Salento, and Gene Lewis. Which also yeah, the means way you put this, the Sorry. way you put the, the chart together uh, here is fantastic. With the color, the color coding is fan, is is wonderful. Wow, I love a good color coded chart. It just helps to show you that it's not the same eight guys working working six nights in a row with each other. That uh, they jumble up the lineups, and a lot of, a lot of it is based on the 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 bicycle of the TV. Um, certain matches can't happen in certain towns until the angle airs. But I think it's also just you know to give guys experience working different wrestlers every night, traveling with different wrestlers every night. And just in case there are those super fans that travel from show to show, they don't see the same exact match with the same exact spots with the same exact finish, which fans in the nineties that would go to WWF shows or WCW shows would see. So that is all. And I'll put this chart out on Twitter, but it's an interesting look at one week in the life of a territory with at least 21 house shows and probably 22 in one territory, which is 
pretty fascinating. Yeah. And speaking of one week, and that's the theme of this podcast, that's going to be the title of it, because we looked at one week in 1972, but we're also going to look at the week-long debut in the territory uh, in the fourth quarter of 1962 of Cowboy Bill Watts. Well, I don't think he was a cowboy just quite yet, but his first uh, appearance is December 17th, 1962, where he teams with Jerry London to face Dandy Jack Donovan and Louis Talley in Tulsa. He works uh, later in the week in Little Rock in Oklahoma City, and then he disappears, or at least doesn't don the tights for about two months. So, John, let's talk a little bit about how Bill Watts got into wrestling in the first place in his early days in wrestling and what we think led to his absence yeah. from the cards after just one week in the territory. It was uh, Wahoo, Wahoo McDaniel is to blame for, uh, for getting Bill Watts, not, not to blame. He got Watts into pro wrestling. And there's even, even pre-wrestling, there's like a really funny story I want to tell really quickly that predates either of them really being in, in wrestling. I think it's 1960, 61, where uh, Wahoo, uh, I think, was playing football for the Oilers at that point. And I think Watts was preparing to play for them as well. And Watts had either just left OU or lost his scholarship or something. And both him and Wahoo had gotten their draft notices. Uh, and Watts was a little worried. Uh, it was a draft notice, but he'd been doing so much weight and strength training at that time. He bulked up to like 315 pounds which essentially renders him too big and heavy for the armed services, even though he was, you know, like 315 pounds of freaking muscle. Uh, Wahoo, on the other hand, he was big, but not that big. He he did have a bad knee, uh, but just to be safe, uh, Wahoo takes a ball-peen hammer to his bad knee and just pounds the hell out of it until all this fluid started to build up on it. Um, this is before they go to the doctor for their physicals, uh, cause they don't want to go. Uh, but the, the funny thing is when they go to the doctor, it ends up being a doctor that they, that they both knew. And the doctor was like, Hey, aren't you guys going to go play, uh, play football, pro football? Uh, <laughs> and they're like, you, and doctor, like, you don't, you guys don't want to go, go in, do you? And they're like, no, we don't. So the doctor just checks, rejects them both. <laughs> so Wahoo pounded his knee for into oblivion for absolutely no reason. A couple of uh, fortunate sons there. <laughs> yes, and Watts, of course, is like, they didn't even make uniforms big enough for me anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway, fast forward to October 62. I think Wahoo at this point is playing for the Denver Broncos in the AFL. Uh, and Watts, I think, had been booted from the Oilers before even making the team because he he punched the coach. Uh, Watts says it you was- You can't do that? <laughs> you know, Watts of because of the coach, uh, Lou, Lou Rimkiss ridiculed him in front of the rest of the team. Uh, so Watts is, is back in Oklahoma. Uh, and the Broncos, I think, were, were either going to play or had just played Houston. So so Oahu's in town. So Watts and Oahu decide to meet up uh, and go drinking. So they're out, good time, having a good time, drinking. Uh, and Oahu pulls out a check for the bartender the cash, you know, as one does when you're out at a bar drinking. Uh, Watts sees the check. It's for like a couple grand, which is a lot of money uh, now, even more then. Uh, and he asks Wahoo, where's this check from? Uh, Wahoo says he got it from wrestling. 
And Watts is like, you know, just for a month? Watts is like, nope. For a week? Nope. Oh, for how much, Wahoo? For how long? Uh, and Wahoo tells him it's for one match. So Watts is absolutely beside himself. He's like, you got this for one match? Who do I need to kill? I could kick your ass in 30 seconds, Wahoo. Uh, and Wahoo's like, Watts, you got to get into wrestling. You'd love it. Um, I think Briscoe, Jack Briscoe, had actually made a, a similar suggestion to Watts a few years earlier, but he never really consider it, uh, considered it. Um, and it's interesting, with, with Briscoe, one of the reasons that he decided to go to Oklahoma State was the coach there, uh, Myron Roderick. Uh, he told Briscoe that he'd be able to set Jack up with Leroy McGurk, McGurk himself being a formal All-American and NCAA amateur champion. Uh, you know, but Watts never really thought much of wrestling growing up. Not a, not a fan at all. He did, you know, but he saw this as an opportunity to make some real money. Uh, so Wahoo makes, makes some calls, sets up a workout, uh, tryout with McGurk and Watts, you know, has his first workout with Sputnik Monroe. <laughs> and, and according to Watts, uh, Sputnik comes out, uh, and he says, according to Watts, he Sputnik started with his quote unquote intimidation tactics. Which uh, there's in the, in the Watts Watts book there's there's a few throughout the book phrases that he uses that you can absolutely hear Bill Watts using on TV, you know, 20 years later. Like, intimidation tactics sounds like one of those Watts phrases, uh, you know. But Watts, being Watts, just, just stretched him and rode him across the mat. Uh, and Watts says that they send him to Tulsa, uh, and all of Murgurk's roster was there. Basically, everybody except for Danny Hodge, who, according to Watts was the only one who could have beaten him. Uh, and Watts was sent there ostensibly, you know, as uh, to try out, but they were all told to stretch him. Uh, and Watts says after they watched him work out, they all told Leroy, you know, you want someone to go stretch him, go do it yourself. Cause he was really, really big guy. Uh, <laughs> Watts comes to the realization, you know, ultimately they're not going to use him. Uh, so he calls Wahoo. Wahoo gets him work uh, in Indiana for bulk Estes. Uh, and bulk was the guy I believe who broke uh, Wahoo into the wrestling business originally. Uh, and he worked uh, for Jim, Jim Barnett, who owned the territory. Um, and isn't Watts also playing football uh, in Indianapolis? Yes, yes. He, yeah. uh, it takes a while to actually get booked up there. And in the meantime, yeah, he's playing for the, the, the Indianapolis Warriors, I believe. And they're uh, part of the United Football League, who are like a minor, my, sort of like a minor league football. Uh, that, what's amazing in, in my research of this stuff, how many second tier football leagues there were in the 60s and 70s there you know now we get so excited when the xfl or the uh aafl whatever it was came around but in the 60s and 70s there were regularly uh multiple leagues obviously they are a significant you know step below the nfl although i guess in 62 there was the nfl and the afl separately so yep. this would have been a tertiary lead yeah. uh, if you know if not even lower yeah and i think yeah i think there's this one you know the, the usl here it's sort of like a minor minor league uh and you know it, it regional to, for this area um in the midwest um i think this too was a wahoo hookup i think wahoo was buddies with their defensive coach or something um but eventually debuts in uh portsmouth ohio uh not originally scheduled to work on the card but one of the other guys I think it's one of the one of the Nielsen brothers, either Art or Stan, uh, called Bill Watts ahead of time, said they were gonna said bring your gear because they are gonna no show and they'd more or less have to let him wrestle. Uh, so Watts and his old friend and current roommate Dale Lewis 
along with George and Sandy Scott, all drive up together. And when they get there, basically the whole card has to be arranged because of like the no-shows. And Watts is informed that he is going to be working in the main event in a two out of three falls match with Big Bill Miller. It's our second Big Bill Miller reference of the evening. Uh, and Big Bill Miller was an enormous dude. Uh, wrestled for Ohio State like a real athlete. Um, and Watts admitted in his book to being very nervous about this, afraid, you know, afraid almost of, you know, not being afraid of Bill Miller, just didn't want to have a bad match with Bill Miller. Now, it does seem unlikely that they would put Watts in the main event in a best of three falls match for his first match. So maybe they were just messing with him a little bit. That's a little friendly, friendly ribbon. Um, but regardless, Watts says Dale Lewis saw how nervous he was looking and he says, look, you and I have worked out plenty. Why don't you and I just go out there? I'll have your first match with you. So they juggle the lineup around again so that uh, Don Jardine ends up working with Bill Miller in the main event and Dale Lewis and Bill Watts would work the prelim. Uh, Lewis, you know, however, tells Watts that Watts needs to work heel, which Watts has never done before. Lewis says, don't worry about it. Listen to me. Everything will be fine. And lo and behold, Watts discovers that he's just a natural at getting crowds to dislike him. Uh, all things considered, they have a first good match, even though Watts accidentally knocks out one of Lewis's teeth. Uh, <laughs> I think he has a total of eight, eight, ten matches maybe working for Barnett and Doyle. Uh, he mentions working with Joe Blanchard, Don Leo Jonathan, and meeting Carl Gatch, working for promoter Al Haft. Uh, around December 62, heads back home for the holidays, starts working for McGurk. Like you said, he has a solid, solid week of bookings. Seems to be getting pushed slash protected. Everything seems to be going great for young Bill Watts. Until he decides to go out drinking with his buddies one night. Um, and I love this part of the story. They're playing shuffleboard, which makes the story just hilariously surreal. Watching a bunch of amateur wrestlers playing shuffleboard. Like tough guy, amateur wrestler, athlete types playing shuffleboard. Uh, I think Stan Abel was the guy who was there. Uh, another amateur wrestler. And he's a smaller guy, like 130 pounds. But he's a wrestler and national champion. And these guys come up with him, start messing with him. It's like three dudes. And Watts isn't even worried because he knows this guy can take care of himself, even if it's three dudes. Uh, then like a bigger guy comes up and Watts, you can see in Watts, you know, you, you just, you can, you can see him drooling when the big guy comes over. Cause of course Watts goes over, hits the guy with a gut shot, grabs another guy. Flings him down the table like he's bowling. Uh, and the owner comes over, grabs Watts, gets him to calm down. They pull him off the third guy. And Watts says, okay, okay, I'll leave, I'll leave. So Watts leaves through the back door where they are parked, but just runs around, circles the building, runs in the front door, hits the, hits the third guy in the head, knocks him out, hits him so hard that he breaks his freaking hand. Uh, he has to go to the hospital for x-rays. And his poor, Bill Watts' poor mother. His poor mother's already there because his brother was having knee surgery from like a football injury. Well, then it's not his poor mother because she's already there. So it, do, it doesn't inconvenience her in any way. <laughs> that's, that's true. Driving-wise, she's not inconvenienced yeah. at all. Um, and like for, the doctors are for a while are coming in and telling you know, Watts and his, his mom that they're worried the guy he hit, he hit might not make it. <laughs> I, can you imagine like Bill Watts in prison? Uh I'm imagining like Bill Watts, like prison Mike from the office, you know, like, well, you know, the, the first, the first con that, you know, attempted to, you know, use intimidation tactics uh, <laughs> against him in prison would, would get stretched. Yes. Bill Watts with a purple bandana, like Michael Scott. And, uh, 
that guy the guy lived so luckily no prison for for, for bill watts uh but with the broken hand he's not getting booked back in the midwest for barnett and doyle again luckily uh you know mcgurk keeps him around as, as a referee while he heals up and according to watts he got over pretty well even as a ref um he eventually returned to the ring February sixty three. Yeah, early um, early February of sixty three. Yeah, and the Watts the Watts McGurk relationship is fascinating. It's a fascinating relationship, and we hear Watts' side of it in his book. Obviously, um, you know he talks about he, he talks about perceiving a lot of jealousy from McGurk as well as some of the other junior heavyweights. Watts' thinking was that you know Leroy didn't want heavyweights because he'd always been a junior heavyweight and all the other junior heavyweights were jealous because they wanted to be in the main event regardless of whether or not they could draw and this jealousy whether actual or perceived makes for very very interesting reading i just wish we were able to hear you know mcgurk's thoughts on it with the with the benefit of proper hindsight that's a, a very brief story about 1962 you can read more about the fourth quarter of 62 where the top Wrestlers were included Danny Hodge, Sputnik Monroe, the great Matsuda, who of course is hero Matsuda, Mike Clancy, the great Bolo, Joe McCarthy, and the Alaskan Jay York comes in for a brief run. Um, the top feud was uh, Danny Hodge versus Sputnik Monroe, also Joe McCarthy with Sput- feuding with Sputnik, and great Bolo feuding with Clancy, and Danny Hodge feuding with great Matsuda. So again, it's just the top baby faces and heels are feuding with one another in, in, in various combinations back and forth. There's also a feud between the, the Alaskan and the great Bolo uh, that leads to a loser leaves town match, which Bolo wins. So that's 1962. And now it's time, John, for our stats 101 feature. Um, so all this year on the blog, I over time covered, uh, Three different years. We covered 1972, 1976, and 1980. Plus, we went back in time and covered 1960, 1961, and 1962. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, looking at all these charts week by week, it it's, can be a bit overwhelming. So I basically developed a way to create some year-end rankings. Um, one of the problems, you know, with this is that there's no natural endpoints in wrestling. Uh, it's literally a never-ending narrative. There, all, there will probably be cases of a wrestler having a big six-month run where three months of it happens at the end of one calendar year and three months of it happens at the beginning of the next calendar year. So you can't really capture uh, their importance uh, by doing these year-end rankings. But it's a great sort of entry level into the world of these statistics. Uh, so what I've done is I came up with a simple little point system uh, where I look at uh, the week by week spot ratings. And if a wrestler has a spot rating above a 0. 0.60 or more, they get one point. If it's a 0. 0.80 or above, they get two points. And if it's a 0. 0.90 or above, they get three points. And for each week, I look at their spot rating and use this point system. So that means the maximum uh, would be 156. If someone was had a 0. 0.90 spot rating every single week and was in the territory for the full year, they would get three points each week. 52 times three is 156. Boom. Similar system for the feud scores. If it has a feud score of 15 or above, it gets a point. 
If it has a feud score of 25 or above, which is what we consider a feud, it gets two points. And if it's a major feud with 40 or above, it gets three points. And again, the hypothetical highest possible score would be 156, but there's never going to be a case of a major feud lasting a full calendar year every single week. Um, you know, I think if, if we look at the record uh, for a, you know, a short period of time, it's probably Lawler Dundee where they had 17 weeks. Oh God. Yeah. In, in Memphis. So that's a little over four months. So we're not really going to look at the points so much as the rankings. So we're going to take a look at uh, the, like I said, the dirty dozen, the top 12 wrestlers in the territory for each calendar year and the feud in five, the top five feuds for each year. Uh, you can see those on the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. But we'll take a look at the top four wrestlers and top two feuds for each year right now. So 1962, top four wrestlers. Number four, Irish Mike Clancy. Number three, the great Matsuda. Number two, Joe McCarthy. And number one, Danny Hodge. Top two feuds. Number two was Matsuda versus Clancy. And number one was Hodge versus McCarthy. So it's interesting that the top four wrestlers were also all involved yeah. in the top two feuds. Uh, 1972, number four, Tom Jones, because it was not unusual to see him yeah. in the territory. Number three, Ivan Putsky. Number two, Grizzly Smith. Number one, Bill Watts. John, what do all four of those wrestlers have in common? Besides, they've never been in your kitchen. They are all baby faces. Oh, yeah. And as I've just started toying with this, that's not always the way it is, but it happens more often than you think. If you think about the top baby faces in a territory, a lot of times they're homesteaders. Think of Watts, think of Grizzly, think of Fritz, think of Eddie Graham, think of Lawler. They're guys that are the established top guys in their territory, and that's usually their home base. Whereas they're often, think of Bruno, and Bruno's heel opponents, what we call, you know, the heel of the month club. Yep. They are rotating in and out every three months. So because of that, this cumulative rating is going to rank baby faces that are there for a long period of time higher than heels that are only there for four to six months. So we see the top four wrestlers in 1972, all baby faces. The top two feuds, number two was a tag team feud between the Continental Warriors of Bobby Hart and Lorenzo Parente against Ken Mantell and Tom Jones. And number one was the feud between Danny Hodge and Dr. X, which we mentioned earlier, took place earlier in the year and led to Dr. X getting unmasked in the territory for the first time. 1976. Top four wrestlers, number four, Bob Sweetan, number three, Dick Murdoch, number two, Killer Carl Cox, and number one, Bill Watts. Top two feuds, actually number two was a tie between uh, the feud between Bill Watts and Waldo Von Erich and a tag team feud of Greg Valentine and Gorgeous George Jr. against the Hollywood Blondes of uh, Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown. And the number one feud was Dick Murdoch versus Killer Carl Cox. Um, which was a really big feud. It ended up being the semi-main event of the first show at the Superdome. And a lot of people seem to think it was more responsible for the very strong house than the advertised main event of Watts versus Terry Funk. Moving on to 1980. Top four wrestlers. Number four, Buck Robley. 
number three, Terry Gordy, number two, Paul Orndorff, and number one, the Junkyard Dog. Top feuds, the number two feud is Junkyard Dog and Buck Robley versus Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy, and number one, Ken Mantell versus Paul Orndorff. So, Right off the bat, let's bring up the obvious. I think yes. any wrestling fan who knows Mid-South Wrestling in 1980, if you ask them what the biggest feud of 1980 was, they would say Junkyard Dog versus the Freebirds. Yeah. And they're correct. The feud score measures only the number of times a specific match takes place. So if we look at the feud between JYD and the Freebirds, it has several stages. It starts out as a tag team feud, JYD and Robley versus Hayes and Gordy. Then there's sort of a secondary singles feud between JYD and Gordy. Then it becomes JYD and Robley versus Gordy and Buddy Roberts. Then it becomes JYD versus Michael Hayes. Then it becomes JYD, Bill Watts, and Buck Robley against Hayes, Gordy, and Roberts. And then it becomes JYD and Terry Orndorff against Gordy and Roberts. If I were to take Every single instance of JYD versus any member of the Freebirds in any form of match, then that feud would be higher than Mantell and Orndorff. But where do we draw the line? If I do that, yeah. should I also consider Robley versus the Freebirds a feud? What about Gordy versus JYD separate from Hayes versus JYD? Yeah. So this is sort of where wrestling is not supposed to be quantifiable and we're trying to make statistics up for a made-up sport um other examples i think we understand that jimmy valiant versus paul jones is a big feud but if we were to do the feud scores for you know crockett at that time you'd see it in various stages of valiant versus you know manny fernandez the versus watley and teaming with someone against two of jones's guys um you look at the feud between dusty and the horsemen same thing it's dusty versus tully then maybe dusty and somebody versus arn and tully and then dusty versus luger and finally dusty versus flair i think you need to look at all those smaller components of the larger feud. Um, Duggan versus Devastation Incorporated would be another one. Um, what else? I was thinking like, uh, you know, if you look think of like Kevin Sullivan in Florida versus, yeah. you know, Mulligan, Wyndham, Dusty, um, a couple others that came to mind is like, you know, even Free Birds Von Eric, you know, like that stuff. Well, yeah, what's um, interesting about that feud is, I don't think there were a whole lot of times where there was a six-man bout with Hayes, Gordy, and Roberts versus three Von Erich brothers. No, I was, and this this was interesting because I was I was using this as an argument during uh, my Hall of Fame voting. Uh, my 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 argument for voting for Carey was, you know, I, I'd much rather see him in. I'd have much less of a problem voting him in as you know the Von Erichs, you know. But then I'm thinking about the Von Erichs as a six-man tag team and there's really not that much even though they were six-man tag champs at one point they didn't have that many matches together no which is I, I think really interesting yeah, i think the, well i think the idea was to have adidas or chris adams there to eat the fall yeah yeah because fritz was it, you know protecting yeah, and there's you know even years before the horsemen flair had like i think they called it the family feud with gene and Oli. um you know in mid-atlantic they did stuff with like 
the mighty Igor feuding with the Malenko family, you know, the mass superstar and Kim Duck. Uh, um, I'm thinking like, you know, anytime you have like, uh, like a bounty angle, like if you think of like Tommy Gilbert in Florida in 81, where I think there's a bounty on him. Uh, I think it's actually the bounty hunters tag team may have actually put the bounty on him, oddly enough. Um, but for a period of, <laughs> but, but, before... but wait, why would <laughs> their bounty hunters, why would they put a bounty? They would call, they're supposed to collect they more, the bounties. They were more or less bounty outsourcers, I think at that point. Um, they, you know, for a period of month, if you look at like Tommy Gilbert's matches, it's like all a $1,000 bounty matches. For the most part, it's like a different dude every night. Like one night, Sahiro Matsuda, John Condry, Buzz Sawyer. Oh, we'll bring the Sheik down, Terry Funk, Dory Funk, Con Schroeder. Um, you know, it's it's so you have to factor that because the feud isn't really with, you know, Hiro Matsuda. The feud is with the Downey Hunter. Yeah. Uh, so but, but, the feud score measures the thing it's supposed to measure, which is the number of times a specific match happens. But we need to, you know. Take it with not take it with a grain of salt, but we need to add more context to these things. And in any proper discussion of the year 1980 in Mid South Wrestling, the top story is going to be JYD versus the Freebirds. And I think all our listeners understand that. But I also want to point out the Orndorf Mantel feud had legs. It went on for a long time. And, and and we should not say, well, it's only number one because of this weird little quirk. No, it was a big feud. It was so big that even though it wasn't over a belt, remember, DiBiase was the North American champion for yeah. much of the calendar year. Orndorff and Mantel was usually higher up on the cards than DiBiase's match. Um, it ended, you know, it looked to have peaked when Mantel got his head shaved, but Apparently, you know, I guess they felt it was still strong enough that they kept going with it for another couple of months. Hmm. And the final blow offs, I believe, were come as you are matches. Um, so remember, Mantel got his head shaved, wore the headgear to cover it up, but also oh, yeah, would yeah. load would load the headgear. Yeah. So the come as you are matches were billed as Orndorff being able to wear his football helmet oh, to yeah. defend against <laughs> the loaded headgear attacks yeah. of oil tycoon Ken Mantell. <laughs> so that was a pretty big feud as was JYD and the Freebirds, but the actual, you know, feud scores have JYD and Robley versus Hayes and Gordy as the most frequent match involving JYD and various combinations of the Freebirds. So take a look at that on the blog. And, and as we cover each calendar year, you know, going forward, I will add year end rankings uh, to this. So eventually we'll get all of them. And then from there, we can do some sort of cumulative ranking of the year end rankings. Oh yeah. Um, I love a list. I love a nice list. I love a list. You know, like, like I said, we said earlier, Watts is clearly on the Mount Rushmore. Um, I think I have, I, you know, originally one of my, uh, little pictures or, or logos I had for the blog had the big four of Leroy McGurk, Danny Hodge, Bill Watts, and Junkyard Dog. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, it also, you know, what time period are we considering the territory? Are we going to consider McGurk's in-ring years when AV was the promoter, or are we looking for it just afterwards? And in which case, if you take McGurk out because he wasn't an active wrestler, who else would be on Mount Rushmore? And and this yeah. would be a good way of finding out. I, I think I know the answer, um, but, you know, it would be neat to find out. It would also be neat to find out if 
JYD actually does make the list. Because remember, it's only, what, a five-year period, yeah. not even? Yeah. And if we're covering, you know, from 1959 to 1986, is there someone else that had the same type of longevity, either in one continuous run, like the Junkyard Dog almost had, or over several runs, like someone like the Great Bolo, for example, yeah. uh, who had multiple runs in the... Uh, early and mid sixties, does he end up, uh, you know, being in more main events for a longer period of time than junkyard dog. So that's something to look forward to years in the future when we actually finish all this stuff next month on charting the territories, we're going to look at 1981 for the first time. Like I said, we cleared out 72, 76 and 80. And that means we get to look at new years starting next month. So we're going to cover the first quarter of 1981. A good-looking newcomer debuts in the territory and gets a huge push, reaching main event status after a few weeks, but it doesn't last, and he's quickly moved down the card. So while diamonds may last forever, apparently Don Diamond does not. So, John, uh, (laughs) any other things you've been working on? Anything you'd like to plug? Nothing to plug. I just got uh, Tim Hornbaker's new book, so I would uh, highly recommend Rogers everybody book? go. Yeah. Oh, I, I haven't even ordered it yet. I'm so behind on books. I'm reading Ron Stars. I just finished up Frankie Kane's. I still have. I st- I still haven't read Andre's book. It's been sitting on my shelf for a couple of months now. So I'm trying to clear out uh, all all the books I've already have and haven't read uh, before I order Buddies. But uh, I, I'm really excited for that. So yeah. you cracked it open. I did. I did a little thumb. I did a little thumb through this afternoon, but haven't actually broken into it yet. Awesome. And where, John? Where can our listeners find you on the Twitter? Oh, my Twitter. I'm uh, John underscore Boucher. J O N underscore B O U C H E R on Twitter. And you can reach me at Al Gets Wrestling. That's L G E T Z Wrestling. Because nobody gets wrestling like Al Gets Gets Wrestling. Um. We're going to sign off for now. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, you can hit up either of us on Twitter if you have any questions or mm-hmm. comments about the podcast. And to be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Our blog is at chartingtheterritories.com. And of course, Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network to each and every one of our listeners merry christmas happy holidays and wishing everyone a safe and happy new year happy holidays everybody